Good morning. <clears throat> I want to talk to you today about the source of a better joy. Growing up as a Christian, uh, you hear a lot about this thing called quiet time or devotional time with God. And um, I always had a strong desire to have a consistent habit of quiet time with God. And I had a real admiration for all the Christians that I knew that had that habit of waking up early and studying their Bible and reading uh, and, and praying. But for me, honestly, I... Uh, the morning is a very difficult time. <laughs> the struggle is very real. Uh, I don't think my humanity kicks in for a good hour after I wake up. Um, but I knew how important it was, and I knew how mature Christians that I, that I looked up to spoke about it as their source of refreshment and, and their life spring. But for years and years, I wasn't able, personally, to develop that habit. I'd be consistent for a few days, and then something would come up, and I'd forget and fall out of the habit. Or, or when I would sit and read, I'd, I'd fall asleep, uh, and it was just a constant battle. And it wasn't until, um, uh, until I was in university, I was married, uh, that I finally began to develop a solid daily discipline. And honestly, what helped me was an iPhone app called the YouVersion Bible app which has reading plans, and you can tick it off, and it sends you email reminders. Um, and through that aid, I was able to finally develop a daily reading practice. And so God really spoke to me through that. I was able to read through the whole Bible in a year, finally, that I'd tried. You know, every January started, and by, by you know, like Leviticus, whew, you know, and then Deuteronomy, it's like, come on, man. And... Uh, and yeah, and you know how that goes. Uh, <laughs> but finally was able to read through the whole Bible, and you know, it's great. So I did that for a number of years, and uh, God really spoke to me through that until it came a point where I felt like it was time for a change. I felt like rather than skimming the surface of the whole library, God wanted me to delve in deeper into a handful of books that I understood um, far less. And so I chose 12 books, a book a month, the, the 12 books that I felt like if someone asked me, what's that about, I'd have no idea what to say, uh, and just spent a month delving in and studying those books. And again, it was, it was a, great, uh, a great time. God was speaking to me, was learning a lot of uh, new things about the gospel and, and, and who God is, until again, it came a point recently where I felt like now this was becoming a tick box on my to-do list. It was becoming another uh, good habit, but one that had become a bit repetitive and, and stale, if I'm honest. And so again, I felt God prompted me to, to change things up a little bit. And um, I remember sharing at, at Youth Praha one time, this was just a few months ago, that I'm reading my Bible every day, but I feel like I'm not meeting with God. I feel like I'm not communing with God. And so I wanted more than quiet time. I wanted communion. And so I decided to focus on the book of Psalms. 
and take one psalm a day and meditate on just that psalm and use a method that's called Lectio Divina, which is a, a method of contemplative reading where you just take a small portion of Scripture and you ask the Holy Spirit, just highlight a word or a phrase and let me dwell on, on that. And so it's like a, a bite-sized kind of morsel that you just chew on and, and spend time in God's presence in. And then I would take what I felt God was speaking to me and, and write a one-page journal, like meditation. And so that's been the past uh, couple months, and it's really been a beautiful change. And what I want to share today is, is really a result of um, what's come out of that uh, most recent method of devotional that I've been following. And the reason I share all that information about these different things is that I'm testifying to the fact that our walk with God really is a relationship. It really is far more than just ritual tasks to complete and tick off your box every day. There's no formulas to relationships. There's only a living dynamic give and take. And so relationships need to grow and adapt in the seasons of life in order to be healthy. And so uh, just like in a marriage, if, if things are pretty boring and humdrum and, and uh, uh, ritual, it's time to take a trip, do something out of the ordinary, do something spontaneous. Uh, it's time for a change. And so um, that first kind of reading plan was about developing the practice of spending time with God. The study plan that I moved on to was about growing in understanding with God. And the most recent thing has been about growing in affection for God. And what better place to turn to for that than the book of Psalms? Psalms is the, the song book of the Bible. And not only because it's a book of poetry, but, but, but because these historically have been the actual songs sung by the people of God for, for millennia. I, it's beautiful to me to think that on the night that Jesus shared his, his uh, last supper with his disciples, Jesus sang from the Psalms. It actually says that in the Gospels, that they, they sang a hymn together. To me, it's, it's, it really touches my heart to think, Jesus sang. That's beautiful to me. Um, I, uh, I loved the Psalms as a teenager, especially, because I felt like uh, they seemed to be full of all the same emotional turmoil that I often felt. <laughs> There's a lot in my journals about, uh, you know, I'm, uh, my, my tears are like a, a sea, you know, which is total exaggeration, but, you know, these are the kinds of things that David says um, and, and the Psalms say. It's, it's actually quite a shocking range of emotion that you find in the Psalms. They're so visceral with feeling. They're not trite and predictable. They're not what a, uh, they're often not what a good religious person, person should say, we think. They're not polite. They're not tame. And so, actually, sadly, for uh, many in the church, they're, they're a little bit, a bit much. <laughs> but God doesn't see it that way. I think the sad 
reality for many of us, including myself, I would say, is we'd be embarrassed expressing most of what David and the other psalmists express in the psalms. All the dancing, all the singing, the shouting, the clapping, the loud cymbals, the crying, the anger, the real anger. You see, um, you know, especially in, in Western Christianity, emotions have become kind of suspect, kind of guilty until proven innocent. <laughs> Express them privately if you must, yeah? Or unless you're at a football match. There, there it's okay, yeah? And, and if anyone see the millions of Sparta fans going through Prague yesterday, if you were out, uh, hooligans. <laughs> but surprisingly tame compared to British hooligans, so I appreciate that. Um, I'm British, by the way, so don't, don't be offended. Um, I would say a lot of Christians... Many of us, we, we, we feel pretty clear about what a Christian should believe, but how should a Christian feel? What's the role of emotion in Christian life? And of course, different churches have different emphases and, and expressions, but I can see at least two extremes. For some in the church, the message that they've received about emotions is that they're essentially negative and dangerous, and so you should control them as much as possible, steer clear of them, really, as much as possible. Christians shouldn't get angry. They're supposed to be nice and gentle. Christians shouldn't get too sad. They should have the joy of the Lord, right? Christians shouldn't be overly happy. Just tone it down a little bit. You're supposed to be reverent before God. You're a sinner. Uh, Christians shouldn't get too excited. God is a God of order and peace. Of course, there's elements of truth to all that. But what that means is when, it, when you know, that one person starts clapping a bit too loud at church, you know, we're, we're kind of like, you know, a little bit suspicious. When someone gets too angry or too sad, well, bless them, they just don't have enough self-control to put a lid on it. We just grin and bear it. And so that's one extreme, but on the other extreme, uh, for others, the message that they've heard is that the feelings that they have for God and how loudly and passionately they express them are the ultimate barometer of their faith and the reality of God's love for them. So the louder they sing or the stronger they clap and scream and worship, the better Christians they must be. The more they weep as they repent, the more forgiven uh, they must be. The more sad they feel, well, the more angry God must be with them. And so there's two extremes that I've experienced in the church, and you'll, you'll have seen different permutations of that. But what is the proper place of emotions in Christian life? Well, the first thing that we have to admit is that it's true. Emotions are not our master. We always have to remember, emotions are, by nature, personal experiences, and so they may or may not be in line with reality. And so it really is unwise 
to entrust our whole view of truth based on how we feel. You can't judge the reality of God simply on how you feel today, on your emotions. And so emotions can be, can be very uh, destructive and deceptive when we give ourselves over to them. When they become our master, we are to rule over our emotions, not them over us. That's why Proverbs 25 says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls, vulnerable to all sorts of attacks. And so emotions are not our master. But the reason that the Bible tells us to rule over our emotions is not because they're evil, but because they're powerful. It says in Proverbs, above all, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Emotions make a terrible master, but they make a wonderful servant. Emotions are a wonderful gift that God's given us and wants us to enjoy. They're not evil. God has made us intentionally as emotional human beings. In fact, reading the Bible, we see that God himself is an emotional being. God himself expresses emotions and feelings. It says in Deuteronomy 30, God is happy. Uh, Jeremiah, God rejoices. Zephaniah, God sings. Uh, Jeremiah, again, God gets angry, and there's lots of examples of all these. God gets sad in Genesis. Uh, Jesus weeps. God loves passionately, it says in John, not reservedly. And so God actually commands us over and over again in, in, in the Bible to have passionate love for him. We're commanded in the Psalms, and other places, we're commanded, shout to the Lord. Clap to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Dance before the Lord. Uh, Revelation says, do not be lukewarm. And I think this, this uh, uh, area of confusion has contributed to, I think, what is one of the most dangerous, destructive lies that the devil has ever gotten over the human race. And that's the lie that God is boring. That God is buttoned up. <laughs> and I think that buttoned upness of, uh, of some of the church has helped to, to foster that, that misunderstanding. I love the quote from the Narnia books that Aslan is not a tame lion. God is not tame God is wild. The Holy Spirit is described as a fire. Uh, God is a consuming fire. Fire is not tame. Fire is uh, not controlled. Um, and this is actually, that lie that God is boring is really at the heart of what gave birth to the first sin. The serpent told Adam and Eve basically, God wants to hold you back from the good stuff. God doesn't want you to have all the fun that you could have. So you better, you better go your own way because otherwise you're going to miss out. But what you see all the way through the Bible, and especially in the Psalms, is that God does not want to quench our emotions. 
He doesn't want to make us boring or restrain us and make us passive and stoic. He wants, to, he wants us to enjoy every emotion and feeling that he created to the absolute maximum. To freely flourish in our feelings as God does. That's what he wants for us. And so we have to pay attention to how we feel. It's true that emotions aren't everything, but they're also not nothing. It's true that we should carry on worshiping God even when we don't feel like it. Uh, absolutely. But it's also very dangerous to ignore how we feel towards God. Because our feelings are a key part of our humanity. It's a key part of who God has made us to be. And just like a marriage, a husband needs to love his wife and carry on acting in accordance with the vows that he made as a husband, even when he's not feeling particularly romantic, even when he's not feeling particularly affectionate. That fact doesn't change the truth that he is married. But wouldn't you say, if you saw a marriage where there was never any affection, there was never any feeling or warmth, wouldn't you say, okay, they're married, but you're, you're missing a gift. You're missing something beautiful. And so, all of us, if we're believers, all of us should eagerly be desiring to grow, not only in our actions for Jesus, not only in an understanding of Jesus, but in our affection for Jesus, in our love for God. So, if I feel cold towards him, and you can see it expressed, and it just comes out of us. You see it expressed in our body language. You know, uh, you see it expressed in my my voice as I sing. Uh, you see it expressed in in the words that I use to talk about my my relationship with God. Um, uh, my thoughts when I think about him. If those things are cold, why is that? What's missing? Why is my heart so cold to the one who loves me? Don't ignore, your, don't ignore a cold heart. Don't ignore the state of your affections towards God. It's a call to reach out to him and seek communion with him. Not because, not because it's one more duty for you to fulfill. You're not feeling happy enough. It's not about that. It's not just another duty to fulfill. It's an invitation to experience the joy that God wants to give us. Joy is at the heart of the Christian life. Not only duty. When I came across uh, Psalm 16 in the course of uh, uh, my devotionals, I was, I was really... I was just so impacted by its joy. It's just overflowing out of this psalm. And that was exactly what I was missing in, in that dryness. That's exactly what my heart was crying out for. Um, it talks about, these are words that you find in this psalm, it talks about delight, it talks about excellence, it talks about pleasance, it talks about beauty, security, gladness, rejoicing, life, joy, pleasure. This psalm is bursting 
with feeling. And you can really feel David's joy as he's writing this. And so uh, another another method of of meditating on Scripture that that Selena introduced me to, actually, is called the the Ignatian method. Uh, It's a way of entering into Scripture by using your senses. Um, You know, taste, touch, smell, uh, uh, sight, and um, hearing. Um, putting yourself in the, in the author's shoes and asking, asking as you read that bit of scripture, what can I, what can I taste as I read these words? What, what, can I, what can I feel? What sounds do I hear? What aroma does it give me? What do I, what do I envision as I'm reading this? And as I, I'd encourage you to try that. It's, it's, it's a really interesting uh, and different way of, of approaching, especially a book like the Psalms. Um, as I meditated on Psalm 16 using that method, uh, the taste that came to me was the taste of a, a perfectly grilled steak <laughs> and, a, and a full-bodied kind of red wine. Uh, I, when I thought of, of what, it, what it felt like I could feel the, the heat um, and the, the, just the solidity of a, of a big rock that you sit on that's been uh, you know, warming in the sun. Um, uh, the, the aroma it gave me was the, the, the smell of when summer begins and, and you know, meat cooking on the grill. And you can notice a pattern here. Uh, uh, it sounded to me like... like you know when you just laugh from your belly and you just can't, you can't control it? And it, it, when, I, when I envisioned it, it looked like blue skies and it looked like uh, just green, green fields. And meditating in that way, I found it really helped me get into the, the joys of this psalm that David's talking about. And to you, it, it will smell and feel and, and look and sound uh, differently, but um, that little method is a way to help us see what, why David is saying, I have no good apart from you. Everything good that I have is in you. And so in keeping with that topic of uh, sensory and, and emotional side of our spirituality, I want to present five reasons why David is so confident to make God his ultimate good and why you and I should as well. And the first one is, God is a better refuge. The psalm begins with those words, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And I, I see this, if you had to split those five senses across this psalm, I see this as the, the touch sense. I. Uh, because uh, I, can, I can feel that strength and solidity like, like a, a, a castle wall is what comes to mind for me. And you might think for yourself, what does the idea of refuge feel like to you? What is the texture of refuge? Um, but the first question that arises when David says that is, what is he asking to be preserved from? Because unlike many of the other Psalms, we don't have some biographical detail to tell us what was happening in his life at that time. Um, but we'll see the answer to that in a little while, actually. Um, regardless of what the specific situation was, I think David is expressing here 
what we all desire in having a place to run and hide and find safety in when we're in trouble. When David talks about a refuge, he's talking at the deepest level of our experience. What we turn to to provide us security and comfort and satisfaction. Uh, When you have a refuge, you throw yourself on it for protection. You give yourself to it. You entrust your security to it. And so there's any number of things that we entrust our safety and security to when we're under stress. And everyone, everyone has a refuge that they turn to. But I think if you, if you compare all the various options of refuges out there, uh, pretty much the least respectable one in the world's eyes is turning to God. That's for the, that's for the weaklings that can't really handle the stress of life. So they need religion. Poor them. Um, but think about David. David was a warrior. David wrestled wild animals, bears and lions, uh, as, a, as, a, as a young man. He was a conqueror. He was a successful ruler that lived in fortresses and had an army at his disposal. David was the opposite of weak in any kind of earthly sense. David takes refuge in God, not because he's weak and simply has nowhere else to turn, but because he knows that God is a better refuge than any other thing. Why would he say that? Well, he goes on to say, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And when I first read this, I was, I was a bit puzzled by this verse. I thought it seemed... I didn't see how it related to any of the rest of it. And I also didn't feel like I could relate to it quite as much as the rest of the psalm because honestly, uh, there's many times when delight is not the best descriptor of my feelings towards my fellow saints. <laughs> uh, l- l- okay, we'll just say uh, less than all my delight is sometimes in my fellow saints. And I'm talking about other people entirely, of course. Um, but the more that I studied this psalm, I began to understand that David is beginning to, to, to list the reasons why he chooses God as his refuge. And his first reason that he, is that he delights in the company of God's people. And why would that be a reason? I think it's because David, as he experiences that delight in God's people, he realizes that he's experiencing the same pleasure that God experiences when he looks at his children. What gives a father greater joy and pleasure than seeing his children flourish? What gives a king greater satisfaction than to see his people prospering? And so it it reminded me of times in my life where I've been in just uh, precious times of, of worship with other believers around the world, and I've just stopped and looked around and just felt overwhelmed with joy of just how beautiful they are in God's eyes and, and to me in that same moment. That's the joy that God sees in us. When he looks at his children growing and maturing, that's the joy that he experiences in us. And so, 
uh, David takes that and he compares it in the next verse with all the other kinds of things that people take refuge in. He says, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. And the word run after that he uses, it means, it literally means to, to marry. And it's that sense of giving yourself to something. And when we give ourselves to anything other than God, expecting that thing to provide us with ultimate safety and security and protection, it's powerless to fulfill that desire. And it's actually a perfect description of the process of addiction. And, and those of you that know me, you know I grew up in a ministry that worked with, um, with recovering addicts. And this is, the, 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 the picture of addiction is uh, the perfect image of a sorrow that multiplies exponentially. So take drugs, for instance. Drugs offer an experience of pleasure. They offer, people talk about a sense of security and well-being. They offer a promise of fulfillment. But the more a person gives themselves to that drug, the less and less they get in return. It's called the law of diminishing returns. They keep chasing. In fact, addicts will talk about that thing, getting that thing becomes the, the whole center of their, of their life. They're running after that thing, getting it at any cost. And yet, the harder they run, the more emptiness they get in return. And there's nothing more sorrowful than the look in an addict's eye when he's chasing that next high. There's a desperation. There's a, there's a sorrow. And yet, that's, that's a, a visible reality, but that same internal reality is what's going on in every heart that chases ultimate security, ultimate refuge in anything but God, because God is the only eternal thing. God is the only good thing that never comes to an end. And so when we get God, the more we, the more we chase him, the more we get in return. The law of diminishing returns is flipped. It's the law of increasing returns. So, in verse 5, David goes on, the second reason, so God is a better refuge. The second reason is God is a better portion. He says in verse 5, the Lord is my portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now I see this as the, the taste of, section of the psalm, and it, it gives us a picture of a feast laid out before a king. And David has chosen his portion of food in God. He's chosen his finest wine in God. And that's why to me, uh, this, this, this is the verse that gives me that, that taste of a, of a, a juicy steak. Uh, psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Does the presence of God give you pleasure like that? Does God taste good to your heart? David is saying God isn't just bread and butter. 
you know, I love bread and butter, actually. But God isn't just what is going to just, just keep you alive. <laughs> David is saying, God is a feast. God is the choicest meat. He's the finest wine. It's a royal feast that you're offered in God. And of course, that theme is, is mentioned over and over again in the Bible. In fact, it tells us history will end in the great wedding feast of the Lamb in Revelation. And so David looks at what, at what God's given him. He says it's pleasant. It's beautiful. And so for us, we need to let God's goodness, his generosity, overwhelm our senses like that. Just like a fine meal. Uh, yesterday I was at the Prague Food Festival and Stephen Trumpfeller, I don't know if he's here today, but uh, the, the food was incredible. The best tuna steak. I'd never eaten tuna steak before. It was incredible. Um, but we need to let God's goodness, God's inheritance to us, overwhelm our senses with joy, just like an incredible meal. This is the better portion. And notice that David is not saying the Christian life is a never-ending banquet of ease and comfort and, and, and relaxation. That's not what he's saying. Because the, the psalm starts, preserve me, God, I'm taking refuge in you. David is in some sort of uh, mortal danger. Uh, he's saying God's portion is the good portion because it's a feast that's given to us even in the midst of suffering even in the midst of danger. That's why Psalm 23 says, God prepares a banquet for me in the midst, in the presence of my enemies. God doesn't exempt us from suffering and danger. He gives us the food that sustains us through the suffering and danger. That's why Jesus said, I have food that you don't know about. I've got something that will carry me through the cross. And it's a food that nothing, not even death, is able to take away from us. That's the better portion. And it not only allows us to survive, but it's beautiful, it's pleasant, it's delicious. <laughs> is that what God tastes like to you? If God, if you're honest, if God tastes tough, if God tastes sour, if he tastes bitter, or if God just tastes meh, if he tastes bland, we're seriously missing out on something. So God is the better portion. And verse 7 carries on, God is a better counselor. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night my heart also instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. David is grateful for God's counsel. God is the better counselor. And when he talks about God being at his right hand, the right hand is a picture, well, that's the place where your advocate sits in court. That's the place where your advisor, the advisor to the king, would sit at the right hand of the king to give him advice. That's the place also where a friend stands, a companion. And we so often picture God above us with a finger pointed down. 
And yet, in this psalm, God isn't up here going like this. God is next to us. He's at our side with his arm around us. That's the picture here. God is our advocate, our advisor, our friend. He argues on our behalf against our accusers. He advises us and gives us wisdom like a loving father. Uh, We have the amazing privilege as children of God, that God not only commands us, but he brings us into his family and he treats us as heirs who have a stake in the kingdom. And God gives us counsel. He gives us the freedom to cultivate what he's given us. That's the the parable of the talents. Um, God walks with us as a faithful companion. Did you know that God doesn't only want you to fall in line, God wants you to flourish. God wants you to become everything that he has created you to be. And so when David says he has set the Lord always before him, there's there's this sense of focusing his attention continually over and over again on God, that God is is also his destination. He's where he's setting uh, his, his sights on. So the question for us, is God your ultimate counselor? Is God your ultimate advisor? Or do you tend to think that you have a better grasp on the situation that you're in? Are we living in his presence, aware that he's at our side? And that takes a fixed intention. It takes a continual looking away from other things and fixing Uh, fixing our sight on God, on Jesus. And so, listen to the better counselor. Uh, I think of that as the the hearing section. I hear God's voice next to me speaking with this loving tone of a friend. That's the hearing section of the the psalm. And then, verse 9, David goes on. He says, because, I, I love this section, because God is the better refuge because he's the better portion because he's the better counselor he says therefore my heart is glad and this these few words are the ones that stuck out to me so much in this in this in this uh, psalm he says my whole being rejoices wow <laughs> my whole being rejoices my flesh also dwell secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And um, as I memorized this, this psalm, that was the section that really stood out to me. Because of all these things that he's outlined, David says he has an overflowing joy. His heart is glad. His whole being rejoices. And it's, it's interesting to me that he says, and also my flesh is secure. My physical body is secure. What does it mean for your whole being to rejoice? That has to be the result of a kind of hope that is utterly indestructible, that nothing can touch, not even death. And David's saying, because of who God is, He has a hope that assures him 
that everything that he takes joy in, every gift that God's given him, spiritually and physically, that the God who feeds him with beautiful food, the God who is his refuge, that walks with him, that God will not allow death to make an end of all those gifts. God will not allow death to put an end to this. And not only will God not leave him to languish in the place of the dead, Sheol, uh, not only will God take his soul to heaven, but David has a hope that God will restore his physical body. He will not allow his body to see corruption. Now that, that is an absolutely radical hope. And what it means is, in God, the, the, the mistake that we make is we think that uh, you know, God saves us so that when we die, we can be uh, floating around in the clouds in heaven, and that's, that's what it means to be saved. When actually, he is securing not only our souls, but also our flesh in a new heaven and new earth with new, resurrected, glorified, physical bodies. That's what the Bible teaches us, that our destiny is not uh, as disembodied spirits floating in the clouds playing harps, <laughs> but flesh and blood, resurrected and perfected bodies reigning in a new heaven and new earth. That's what we see in the book of Revelation. And so that's, that's why the writers of the New Testament, they took this, this, this verse and they saw that actually, ultimately, it referred to Jesus. Because David says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. But of course, David did die and was buried, and his body did see corruption. It did decay. But Jesus died and was buried and was raised. His body did not see corruption. He was the first evidence, the first fruit of the destiny of all of God's children, a physical resurrection that one day God will not only save our souls, but he is going to restore our, our bodies. Your health, your youth will be restored. 1 Corinthians 15 is, is the most beautiful section about that truth. And that is the hope that David clung to. And he clung to it. He knew that he could be sure of that hope because of the nature of the God that he trusted in. We have an even surer hope than David had because Jesus has brought all of these hopes into fruition in his resurrection. And so all of that, remember at the start we were asking, what is David asking to be preserved from? Well, this gives us a picture of what he's asking for. He's asking God to preserve him body and soul so that he can carry on enjoying God's love eternally on the other side of death. And he looked ahead and saw God promising just that. And so this is, this is what I think is the, the vision section of this psalm, looking towards that ultimate glorious hope of the resurrection. And all of this, the, the, this incredible joyful psalm leads us to the final verse, which says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
breathe in a better joy. When we hold on to the better refuge and we taste the better portion of God and we hear the voice of the better counselor and we see the glory of the better hope of the resurrection, we can breathe in a better joy. A joy that is utterly indestructible. And David describes this path as as a, a road that leads further and further into life. Our trajectory with God is more and more into life, more and more into joy and pleasure. And so, are you growing in your joy in God? Because joy is at the center of it all. God's presence, David says, and the literal word there is God's face, or God's faces, actually. There is fullness of joy Not an incomplete joy, not a limited joy, not a lacking joy, but a joy that is abundant. And that is the joy that you're made for, that I'm made for. So my preaching preaching to myself is, why do you settle for a lesser joy? Why do you settle for so little? Why are you so content with half-heartedness? Oh, my soul. And maybe you're thinking, okay, we're talking so much about joy and pleasure and all this stuff, and I I just can't really relate to that. Well, let it make you hungry. Because joy is on the table. That's what God's offering us. Come and feast if you're hungry, he says. When we join God at the table, that's where we find pleasure forevermore. So, as we as we move back into a time of, of singing uh, in worship together, I just want to encourage you. Now, this is, this is probably a very different thing than, than you've ever heard, but just allow yourself to enter the presence of God in your senses. Don't let fear hold you back. Don't let the person next to you hold you back. Allow God's presence to bring you that fullness of joy today so that the, the band can start coming up. I just want to sum up those, those, those five reasons. Do you need somewhere to run to today? God says, take hold of the better refuge Do you have an appetite for more? God says, feast on the better portion. Do you need wisdom in a situation in your life? God says, listen to the voice of the better counselor. Are you lacking in vision and hope for the future? Fix your gaze on the better hope. Do you feel constricted and and dry in your walk with God. Today's the day to breathe in a better joy. Let's pray together. Father God, we are overwhelmed with the fact that you not only command us as king, you not only uh, call us to obey you as your sons, as you have every right to do, Lord, but you want to offer us 
joy and pleasure and a life in your presence that is the, the meaning of what life really is. So Father God, I pray that as we, as we worship you now, that your presence would invade our hearts. Give us a touch, a, a taste of that feast. Give us a, a glimpse of that hope. Uh, 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 a touch of that refuge. A whisper of your loving counsel. And a, a breath of that indestructible hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.